Hello, and welcome to Grapevine, the podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we're going to talk about heroic narratives. So, um, the reason why I, I was thinking about heroic narratives was because I uh, was teaching a film course over the summer, and um, I was introducing the students to two uh, basic types of narrative structure. Um, very simply put, one, one being tragic, one being comic. Um, the tragic one, the main character starts at sort of the pinnacle of his life, and usually, uh, or stereotypically, tragedies have been about male characters. And um, they fall from that pinnacle. So it's, if you think about a kind of wheel of fortune image, Tragedies are about that downward spin, um, whereas comedies are a more full circle. They don't just go down. They're, they start at a kind of status quo in which there's some kind of problem, and then things disintegrate a bit, and then there's some kind of recovery at the end, and whatever status quo problem there was gets uh, fixed. And I was introducing those to them because I wanted to talk about, well, first I was uh, talking about screwball comedies with them, and, and I wanted to show how screwball comedies fit into that general comedy structure. But then I, I also went on to use it to talk about westerns as the tragedy uh, structure. Because uh, Westerns do have a lot in common with that uh, tragic narrative structure, um, primarily in that they're they're often about revenge. Um, so now, when you say uh, Westerns, are you talking mostly about uh, are you just generally, or like novels of a certain period, or movies, or? Well, I was talking uh, about Western movies, but those Western movies were derived from Western novels. Sure, sure. So I'm talking about, like, John Wayne films. Okay. Um, and you know, something happens, and the, the person has to deal with the fact that uh, some wrong has been done, um, and then takes revenge for that wrong that has been done. Um, but the the main difference is that and this is something I, I just noticed for the first time when I was talking about it with my class is that in a classical tragedy, um, well, if you've ever seen any of Shakespeare's tragedies, um, everyone winds up dead, right? <laughs> and in uh, westerns, it's only the bad guys that are dead, and the hero survives. So that just got me thinking that there seemed to be something different about um, 
classic westerns, it may be about that kind of American narrative structure in general. You mean that's that not something was, that before American westerns it was very common in a, in a tragedy? I mean, like you were saying with Shakespeare, uh, you know, like you said, everyone seems to be dead at the end, but but there wasn't anything from say uh, European hero narratives or something that uh, that uh, from whence that western type of narrative would derive? Well, not really, not in tragedy, um, but I think now if I if I go back and I trace some other older forms, you can see that um, maybe one of the things that's going on with uh, the western is that it's actually incorporating more than just that tragic narrative into it. So um, I'll I'll go backward a bit in sort of narrative history. Okay. To and then bring us back to the Western. Okay. Um, so when when I was thinking about, I wasn't just thinking about, let's say Shakespeare. I I was thinking about, boy, it does seem like in a lot of heroic stories that I can think of, if I go back and I think about epics. Mm. Um. In epics, there there is always this kind of uh, confrontation with death that really, um, you know, forces the acknowledgement of death rather than overcoming it. Usually, um, so going back to very very early epics like um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is really really early. Mm-hmm. Uh, Babylonian story. Yep. Um, the hero is the king of, uh, and so he's also, he's an adventurer, but he's also the king. And he's a kind of terrible king at the beginning. He's really, um, a tyrant. And the gods decide that, uh, he needs to learn a lesson. So he's first sent somebody who's kind of a rival figure, um, and then that rival figure eventually becomes not a rival, but his friend, his best friend, but then the friend dies, and he has a really incredibly tough time dealing with the idea of his friend's death. Hmm. And uh, he goes off in search of uh, various ways to overcome death. And um, unsurprisingly, none of them work. <laughs> he finds some finds some man who's been made immortal by the gods. and um, Who survived the flood or something, right? Yeah, yeah. right. And uh, the man says, okay, you, know, you can have the secret of immortality, but you have to stay awake for seven days. <laughs> And as he says, okay, I'll do that. And then as soon as he says that, he falls asleep. Um, so, so it's, uh, the, and sleep being the little death, it's sort of the message is, yeah, yeah. well, you can't overcome it. Right. Um, so he comes back from these various adventures, and um, he doesn't become immortal, but he's a much better king. Um because he 
he doesn't think that he's a god, basically, is the, the message. He has some perspective. Um, yeah, that he, he is not going to be there forever. Hmm. Um, and then moving forward in time somewhat, um, well, uh, I'm going to skip over. I want to contrast uh, the Iliad with the Odyssey in a second. But okay. Just moving forward for a minute to um, Beowulf, the Anglo-Saxon epic. Um, there you have the hero comes, he kills the monster, and he kills the monster barehanded. And uh, I, I just taught this story, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. <laughs> that uh, One of the things that's going on uh, when he kills the first monster anyway and killing the first monster barehanded is that the the monster is um, angry about the feasting and the good times that people are having uh, in the mead hall together. Everybody's drinking and laughing and singing and eating. And the monster comes and kills people and he eats them. Um, so it's not just that he kills them. There's there's a lot of imagery about how they who were feasting became the feast. But he also says, now, I asked you guys politely three times to turn the music down. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you just didn't do it. And so, you just didn't listen so to it. So this me. is how it's going to have to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. That's the moral so, of that story, right? There. Yes. Someone asked you nicely to turn the music down. You, you, you're polite and you say, oh, I'm so sorry, and you turn it down. Because if you don't, then they you will get come and eat torn you. limb from limb to come somebody's <laughs> dinner. Um, so the message there is that the, the physical body is vulnerable. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you're feasting away and you're thinking, oh, I'm sort of the king of everything. I can kill all these animals and feast on them, well, you too could become the feast, right? Yeah. But then Beowulf, by killing him barehanded, sort of seems to assert that, oh, wait a minute, maybe the human body is kind of super. Uh, you can, this monster that uh, was tearing people limb from limb, Beowulf comes in and he tears him limb from limb. Hmm. Um, but uh, he hit, he has to, Beowulf has to fight two other monsters during the course of the story, and as the story goes on and he's getting older, um, and the second monster he kills is Grendel's mother, and that's only days later. But even when he fights her, he has to fight her in armor and with a sword. Hmm. And then by the time he's an old man, he has to fight a dragon, um, and Again, he's fighting in full armor with a sword, and he doesn't survive. He's poisoned by the dragon's bite. And in between that, um, there's this passage where, after he's killed Rendell's mother, and there's a big celebration again, and the, the king is thanking him and saying, you're a great guy, <laughs> but let me tell you this, story first before you go and you know you've gotten your reward and everything there was another guy who was like you who was a great hero 
And because he was so brave, he thought it was never going to end for him. And he just became this greedy, violent, horrible, evil man. Hmm. So just remember, things will end for everyone. And uh, so that that's not the only time that happens. But the ongoing message in that story, there's a lot about fate and you know, even the fact that the king who uh, Beowulf goes to help out says, you know, I used to be a young man. I When I was a young man, I could have defeated Grendel, but I'm old now, so I have to depend on you. Uh, you keep having these sort of old and young uh, contrasts, which force the hero to realize, well, there are limits to my heroism. Um, even even as the story paints the hero as almost superhuman, it still insists that, yeah, that's it doesn't matter. I mean, if a, a human being could be the strongest, smartest human being ever anywhere, but it's still a human being, and pretty soon it's going to end for that guy. Right, right. So it seems like there's something of that element that seems to be missing in um, Westerns, for the most part, I would say. I mean, there, there are exceptions, but it's not the traditional Western story. Um, the traditional Western story, the hero rides off into the sunset to fight another day. Hmm. Um, so, and, and he's a righteous hero. He yeah, yeah. You root for him to achieve his goal, and and it's it's a good ending when he does. And so, um, going back now for a second to um, the contrast I was going to make between um, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. I think this might be where some of the other elements from uh, the Western are coming. Okay. So I was initially making the division between tragedy and comedy. Um, I think a more uh, accurate division might be between what I've been calling the epic, um, in which the person sort of has to face headlong uh, mortality, um, and the romance, of which comedy is a subset, but not every romance is also a comedy. Okay. Um, so the Iliad would be another good example of an epic. It has that uh, classic um, reason for being that it's this kind of revenge story that you know there's a woman stolen from one group and the other group has to go and fight for her return. And Lots and lots of people get killed, and this, the hero is Achilles, who seems vulnerable, but he's not invulnerable, and, and uh, he dies along with most of the other people, <laughs> right. um, with a with a few exceptions on the side of the Greeks. But actually, uh, even the Greeks who make it home die, um, yeah. sometimes because of what they did before they left. Um, the Odyssey, on the other hand, even though it's, it's a very, very long story, it's not 
really an epic in that sense. It's more of a romance. And a romance, um, the form of a romance is you have a beginning in which uh, civilization or culture, um, you have a status quo, but there again, there's something askew. There's something that needs to be fixed. Something that brings about a kind of disintegration. Right. And then the middle of the story is a disintegration, and the end of the story is a reintegration. Right. Um, whereas epics end with end at the disintegration point. They don't have a real reintegration story. Um, so the Odyssey is more of a romance because. Um, Odysseus does uh, make a big, big mistake. Um, he, uh, in fighting um, Poseidon's son, um, the Cyclops, he insults Poseidon, and because he insults Poseidon, he gets like 20 plus extra years added onto his voyage to try to make it home, and he loses all his ships, and he loses all his men, but eventually he makes it home. And, yeah. Um, so it's a return to the status quo. Right. So the what happens to a hero there, and that's not a comedy, but what happens to the hero is that um, instead of confronting death at the end of the story, um, something has happened such that he is able to return to civilization. Um, civilization or the culture is repaired in some way. Hmm. So that seems to be what romances are about. Um, more epics or tragedies are not really about that. They're, they're about human limitation. Whereas romances are more kind of a wish fulfillment in a way, although they still do deal with death in that middle section in which there's disintegration, but there's some kind of human um, answer to that. Right. Of, um, not that we're going to live forever or anything, but that we do have a connection to other people. Um, Odysseus makes it home. Um, he, he's able to see his father again. He's able to see his wife. He's able to finally meet his son. So that kind of human connection um, is the compensation. Right. Um, in comedies and in the things that we usually think of as romances, the integration at the end of the story is most often a, a marriage. So what compensates for death is the fact that there'll be a new life because there's human connection that results in birth. Sure. Um, or sometimes people have said that, um, in many ways, the, the Christian narrative is a romance because it says the compensation will be a, a rebirth. So, um, so I think there are elements of the romance in Westerns, and uh, some of that comes really from romances as they... Uh, say, go into the Middle Ages, are, are adventure stories, as Westerns are. Sure. 
Um, Why is that, do you think? I mean, uh, you, you can imagine a story being having that same structure but not having, like, action and stuff in it. I mean, where does, where does the connection between a story with that structure where there's – well, I, I maybe it – Maybe as I'm thinking about it, it is kind of inherent because, like you said, yeah, there's a status quo, there's sort of a disintegration, and then a kind yeah, something of re- has something has to be done to bring yeah. about the uh, the reintegration. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one thing that that's interesting if you think about uh, a lot of romances, like Shakespeare's romances, both the comedies and the things that are just called romances, is how prominent women are in the stories because women aren't in epics at all um well except as except, trophies yeah or... except as the thing that got stolen yeah the thing to go get yeah um because if it's about this reconnection with uh civilization or reconnection with the human um Especially if it's about marriage or rebirth, then, then women become much more important figures. Like, they're not, they're not needed really in epics. Or at least the way epics, uh, right, because the guys can, can sc- us. because the guys can screw things up perfectly well on their own. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and kill each other. Yeah. Hey, what, what do we need women for? We're just gonna kill each other and be all dead bodies on the field. What? Who needs? But if we're gonna like kiss and make up at the end, yeah, we need. <laughs> we might need a few women. There. We might need a few women there to balance things out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and romances became really the the prominent form in some ways as women got more power as uh, storytellers. Uh, as you move into the Middle Ages um, and you have courtly love narratives, uh, women have more power in those um, because the idea is that the uh, the woman who is the object of the knight's affection uh, kind of vies for the place of um, the liege lord. Uh, she has the same kind of power that the king might have, but um, he's doing things for her, following her commands. Um, although I, something interesting I read about uh, courtly love romances um, kind of uh, contradicts the idea that um, this is really female power in a way, because even though it looks like female power in the stories, um, socially, uh, in real life, I was reading that uh, one of the reasons why this kind of tradition might have evolved is you had all these um, younger sons running around who were the knights, because the, the older guys would have been the guys who owned the land, and they needed some way of keeping the younger guys in check so that they wouldn't just go marauding around the countryside. Oh, right, sure. So, to have a kind of story that says that you will act in a kind of, a, you will act in a gentlemanly 
chivalrous way because of love yeah, was yeah. Uh, an ideal to to try to curb that kind of violent behavior among younger sons. But one of the reasons why I, wa- I wanted to point that out is that um, so if we think about the Western as having both some of those elements of epic or the tragedy of revenge stories, although not ending with the hero dying along with everyone else. And then on the other hand, they also have elements of the romance. Um, But think about, well, what is it that's the problem that leads to disintegration and leads back to reintegration um, in the Western um, the problem is usually very similar to the kind of problem you might have in a tragedy that somebody's killed somebody else, right? Right. Um, and the this leads to all kinds of losses, but is recovered by the hero killing the bad guy. Then society is reintegrated at the end. Um, just as it would be in a romance. But one of the big differences is that the hero riding off alone into the sunset, the hero doesn't really become a member of the community. Um, The hero remains an outsider for the most part and um, usually doesn't... uh, There might be a romantic interest, but the romance doesn't lead to settling down. Because the, the marriage is sort of replaced by this this obscure, or not obscure, uh, this sort of esoteric justice concept or something. Yeah, the marriage is replaced by, by the revenge story. Yeah, yeah. So, um... But, I mean, it's it, the, the sense that, that, that the revenge being played out in the death of the bad, quote-unquote, bad person... That restores everything. That makes everything okay. Yeah. That makes and everything it, okay. And it's called justice usually, right? With a capital yeah. J. Yeah. It's like, well, we have, we We've have achieved, achieved justice. justice. So, so then the hero doesn't, that's the recompense for the heroes. So the hero doesn't really, not only, the hero doesn't really need the whole marriage thing, but I, I, I realize though that there's probably another narrative reason that the hero rides off into the sunset and doesn't get reintegrated into the society. Well, I think another uh, reason why the hero doesn't get reintegrated into society is that, um, in some ways, the the Western, um, even though you know justice has been served and all of that, the main focus I don't think really is on the um, the disintegration of society. I think the thing, if we think about a romance as being a story about a loss and then a return of what was mm-hmm. lost, right? then what is lost when someone is killed at the beginning of uh, the Western is there is a threat to the society, but the main thing that's lost is the hero's honor, which mm. he recovers when he mm-hmm. uh, is able to kill the bad guy. 
but if he becomes a member of the society, um, he does not remain honorable. How come? Because in Westerns, the society always has this um, element of uh, civilization has a somewhat corrupting influence. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, honor is always this thing that rests within the individual, the isolated individual. Um, and by marrying or, you know, by marrying he becomes weak. He becomes dependent on someone else. And his honor, his moral code rests on his being completely independent. Now, let me ask you a question at this point. I don't, I don't want to uh, take you off your train here, but but what you're saying reminds me of the Epic of Gilgamesh because, uh, you know, you were talking about the, the, the tyrannical king that uh, the story starts out about. But his friend, uh, the friend that dies later, yeah. isn't he like a, like a wilderness? He's, like he's a man from a the wild wilderness. Man. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a wild man. And um, at some point in his story, he's corrupted by a woman. Isn't that right? That's true. Yep. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Samson and yep. getting his hair cut yeah, and everything. Yeah. So, so, um, so that's kind of, that kind of parallels what you're talking about here with the Western a, a little bit, doesn't it, or doesn't it? Well, I, I mean, I can see what you're talking about, that there are elements of the woman as a corrupting influence. Um, of the wild man as, uh, like the, this, like this is manhood in its purity or something. Right, in the wilderness. Uh, yeah. yeah, unless I, you know, I, I'm, except, I'm obviously except I can, I remember this story right. just a little bit, except so he, you're gonna have to correct not, some of my misconceptions here. He's not the hero, though. No, that's yeah. true. But, but he's, he's, uh, but is, is he, he's kind of sort of presented as, well, I, again, I, 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 should, I probably shouldn't say too much, because I remember, I, I remember this story only a little bit, and I remember that aspect, because I thought how interesting that was in terms of, um, you know, because I noticed that there is this modern uh, that you're you're talking about that's in westerns. It's still in a, other types of narrative, also. And I've, yeah, I no, I, I, I do. I agree with you. I mean, the idea that um, women represent a weakening influence—that's it, not new. It's not new to American yeah, yeah, westerns. Yeah. Um, right, right. But I think the um, the idea that the hero is is never going to be a part of the civilization that in order to remain heroic he has to remain apart and that that's different um, Gilgamesh that is really Gilgamesh interesting becomes because the king Beowulf um, even though he's an outsider into the first kingdom uh, one of the things he's acting to do is to um, you know, allow people to gather together uh, in this place. And then, by the end of the story, he's actually the king of his own uh, kingdom. But, uh, actually, just getting off, we're getting a little bit off track with ethics, because I think what it, what I was trying to say with the Western is that it does have that, uh, contrasting it with the epic, um, it has the element of death, but 
the hero doesn't have to face his own death. And then it has the element in the romance of the reintegration of, uh, or the recovery from loss, but the loss is not of civilization, or that's not where the focus is. The focus is right. on the recovery of the, the hero's honor and the hero's sense of his own moral code, which is, uh, it's absolute, and it's so absolute that it can't be within civilization, which requires compromise. So it's, it's really very strongly and, and almost harshly individualistic. Yeah, it's very, very individualistic. Um, and I, I feel like it, in some ways it sort of says a couple of things about American culture. Um, one of them being this idea that you can have a kind of heroism which doesn't have to face its own limits. It, it kind of reminds me of ideas about American exceptionalism. Um, hmm. That, you know, heroes... In traditional stories, uh, heroes, again, like Beowulf, someone's always talking to them about, you know, don't get too full of yourself. Or yeah. the gods step in and do something which remind the hero, mm, you know, you're not the boss of everything. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and in westerns, the, the hero is the most capable, the most, um, uh, he's not a superhero, but he can outshoot anybody. And the fact that he is uh, able to be more violent, more efficiently than anyone else is a sign of his moral goodness. Um, mm. So, uh, for instance, one of the, movie I was watching it with my film class. Um, it's not completely a traditional Western, but it does have some traditional Western elements. It's the searchers. And there's a, a scene early on in which there's going to be um, very shortly afterwards, there's going to be a big gunfight with the Indians. But before that gunfight happens, the guys who are out in the posse, uh, one of them, who's a minor figure, says, you know, I, I'm not sure this is a good idea, us all being out here together, because, like, who's protecting the homes and stuff? And there's going to be another raid. And there's this implication that, you know, maybe he's being a little cowardly for saying that. You know, is he trying to back <laughs> out? And I think somebody confronts him, and he says, hey, you know, I'm not trying to back out of this or anything. But as soon as he says that, you think to yourself, that's the guy that's going to get shot. <laughs> and The guy that made an excellent point, <laughs> uh, really, is the one that's going to die first. Well, he doesn't die, he does, but he, he, does, he is the one guy in the battle who gets shot. And you know he's going to get shot because... <laughs> He said something that could be construed as being maybe backing out of the violent confrontation. And the cowboy gods of gunfights are going they're to not, yeah, make him they pay are for not that. going to smile upon him. Um, 
<laughs> so in in a way, it's exactly the opposite of what happens, say, in Greek uh, mythology. Like in Greek mythology, the guy who stands up and says, "Hey, I'm better than anybody else," and you know, you you just look up to the skies because you know the god's foot is going to come down any minute and squash him. Yep. Uh, yep. So hubris gets you in a lot of trouble, but in the Western hubris standing up like like in the uh, gunfight that happens, everybody else hunkers down behind something, and John Wayne stands up with his foot on a rock and shoots at the Indian, <laughs> and he doesn't get shot because <laughs> oh no, of course not. not. <laughs> so it's like okay, yeah, he's clearly the good guy at this point. And as soon as he does something late in the film, which the film wants to show is morally wrong, he gets shot by an arrow. So it's it's always that you know, people who people who do the right thing in westerns are going to be able to shoot and kill everyone else. Somebody who makes a mistake, they're going to get it. That's so biblical. I mean, you know, there are parts of um the Old Testament, uh, where the promise to the uh, Israelites when they go into battle to claim their homeland is, you'll, your sword will land on, you know, its target, but no sword will land on you. I mean, it's, mm. you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's not just that they were promised victory many times, it's that they were promised to not get a scratch, mm. basically. Mm. It's kind of an interesting... Uh, uh, thing it very select parts not not all the old testament portrays battles that way but there are a few where the promise to the israelites as they go into battle is uh yeah you, every every person you touch with your sword will fall but not a sword won't fall on you so that's really uh that's really interesting i hadn't actually realized that before um well hmm. you're reminding me that um i did want to uh bring in some of the, the Christian uh, romances or adventure stories in since there's a big influence, of course, of Christianity on our narratives. But I, I think, again, there is a contrast between um, older um, Christian narratives, except, as you're saying, in the Bible, but I, I guess I was thinking about... Um, Stories of knights like Gawain and the Green Knight, or, um, mm, or the right, Red Cross right. Knight um, in uh, Spencer's Fairy Queen. Um, but just really quickly sketching out what I saw as some differences there is that uh, in Gawain and the Green Knight, another, it's another romance really, um, the message of that story is that Gawain is is the most perfect knight that existed in all of human history. And, and Arthur's court was the best court ever. But it still had limitations because it was human. Um, and Gawain's main limitation, he he's truthful, he's brave, he's courteous, but he fears his own mortality. And that makes him tell one thing that is a lie um, because he believes that he can save his 
own life by wearing this uh, magic belt that will protect him from harm. And instead of protecting him from harm, uh, it's a sign of, that he's done something shameful. And mm. he doesn't die, but he, you know, wears the green belt and he vows that, you know, there's, there's actually still a whole order of knights of the green garter, I guess, that this is about. But he'll wear the belt and the other knights of Arthur's court will wear the belt to remind them of his fault, that he was too focused on this life and he should have put his trust in God to protect him. Um, and that it didn't matter if he got killed or not because he has a, a life beyond this life. Um, right. And then by the time you get to the story of the Red Cross Knight in Spencer's Fairy Queen, uh, you then had the Protestant Reformation and the message about heroism is even stronger than I think it was in Gawain because the Red Cross Knight does all these adventurous things, but uh, every heroic action he takes actually just gets him into more and more trouble instead of actually saving him or saving anybody else. Um, mm. And when he comes to the end of this series of adventures, um, he has to learn that no action that he takes can save him. Um, only God's grace saves him. So mm. um, he then goes on to do things to save somebody at the very end of the story, but only because he knows that he's just a vehicle. He's not uh, a hero, really, in, the, in what we would think of as the traditional sense of the word. Now, if you think about that, that's so different from the image of cowboys. I mean, both Gawain mm -hmm. and uh, the Red Cross Knight. Uh, in the case of uh, you know, Gawain, the idea that, um, well, for him, the reintegration story at the end, it does have that element that human civilization is, there is something about it that's never going to be perfect. So it, it doesn't look to marriage or any of that, but it looks to a next life and says, okay, that's where you have to put your focus. And in the, the Red Cross Knight, mm -hmm. You have to put your focus so far on the, the next life that actions that you take in this life are really, uh, they just get you in deeper and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the, the Western and then thinking about, we might want to go back to the Western and then think about how that has led to the kinds of heroes we have now since Westerns aren't really the, the most, um, the strongest kinds of stories today well unless you i mean yeah yeah unless you look at stories today and you yeah. see how they sort of there, are derived from definitely them. a derivation um i think yeah. where westerns go next to me is detective stories so i was going to ask about that so so you think um did did westerns influence detective stories or the other way around or they just both sort of developed 
parallel to I each think other. Detective stories came later than westerns. Um, so, like, like that that harsh individualism that you see, like in Sherlock Holmes or whatever, that that came after uh, westerns were being written. Well, I was or? thinking primarily about um, American detective stories. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Sherlock Holmes, there there is that uh, strong individualism, but he's still much more part of a, a community than the American detective is. American detective is much more. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Than Sherlock Holmes is. Yeah, I, I yeah, you're um, you're right about that. So in uh, the American detective, I think of I sort of have this. Actually, almost like a, a visual image of the Western hero kept moving further and further west until they landed in California. And then there was nowhere else to go, and cities grew up around them and they became detectives. <laughs> That's, that kind of <laughs> seems like what happened to me. Um, yeah. They have that same uh, strong moral code um, early detectives do I guess later on they might become more corrupt when you get to people like uh, the, the pulp writers Mike Hammer or those kinds of people um, if I'm thinking of the right person but I was thinking of more of uh, Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler and those um, detectives they even often think of themselves as knights so it goes back to the romance stories. And they sometimes have romance story structures. But even more, uh, there's no possibility of romance. And even more, the society is corrupt. Um, and the only uh, justice sometimes is within themselves. They can't even influence um, the culture to become more um, just. You know, they might take a just action or their action is as just as is possible given you know, where they are, but um, it's, it's very but limited. I'm also thinking of a contrast, and you can tell me if this is a valid contrast or not, but, you know, you go from uh, helping uh, helping the woman keep her ranch that the evil banker is going to take away from her to the woman comes to your office and asks you to help her with some investigative thing and she turns out to be like right exactly bad guy kind exactly. Of thing. Um, in the western you, you often had the two female figures one representing civilization um, who wants marriage with the hero and then the other one yeah. who is more of the West, usually she's a prostitute, um, and mm. she is in some ways closer to uh, being like the hero, and she usually is killed. Um, so she's killed mm. and the other woman is rejected. And then by the time you get to the detective story, they're all more like the prostitute figure. But... But often pretending, but pretending not, not to, be. to be, right? So yeah. in a way, they're they're kind of uh, embodying both, I guess you could say. 
because they their mask is but one that, that's thing, sort of their reality is the other but that really enhances that thing you were saying about how there's even less romance there's even less possibility for the right because to, for because the to even hero have to find love a romance with this woman because she's two-faced uh, would mean that, yeah. you know giving up your moral code um well but it's 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 part of his heroic uh it's part of his heroic idiom i guess you could say to not be taken in by her. Though. Right, exactly, yes. Right, this, I mean, this shows, yeah. like, a lot of times, there, there's a lot of times there's this sort of flirtation going on yeah. between them, and, and you're almost led to think that he's falling for her and something's going to happen, but then you find out that he right. was never I'm not taken play in by the it sap at all. For you. He knew all along yeah. that she was crooked. Yeah. <laughs> so that becomes, he he's, you know, women and their feminine wiles can't, can't, uh, I mean, because it's one thing for the for the cowboy not to be tempted just by this beautiful, you know, uh, virtuous woman who's who's just standing there yeah. looking beautiful <laughs> and virtuous. But he nope, and he rides away. This woman's actually working yeah. on the guy. Still can't break him down. He he's not going to be taken in by her. That's interesting. So I guess to me the the main way all this comes down to what we're we see. Most of all, today is is in uh, superheroes. So I've been trying to think about how this mm-hmm. applies to superheroes. And um, one idea I've had is that um, in a lot of superheroes, the idea of their having uh, a secret identity in order to protect the people that they love means that you can never mm-hmm. reach that um, inch that complete integration of the hero back into culture and the way of having a relationship with others. He's forced because of his right. power to always be apart. Um, yeah. This, I mean, definitely Superman is, is an example of that, I would say, besides being alien. Well, and of course, Batman too. I mean, you were, you were talking about how, you know, it, it's, you've got this image of the cowboys went west and then eventually they had nowhere else to go and they became detectives and eventually their exploits instead of being written in penny dreadfuls started becoming you know they were written in pulps which became comic books i mean yeah you you can see that evolution just yeah flowing right along um and i guess in in batman the fact that robin was introduced does give a kind of next generation uh, connection. Well, you know that's true. Uh, Batman. The thing about Batman is that um, uh, a lot of what people know about him or think about him is informed by how he's been written in the last thirty years. Uh, you know, after after right, Dark Knight Returns right, right. by Frank Miller and and. Uh, other things that were written even a little bit before, but Frank Miller's uh, Dark Knight Returns is considered sort of like, I don't know, a watershed mm. moment. Um, you've, you've got this picture of Batman, at least in the comic books. Anyone who's read the comic books in the last 30 years, uh, Batman, in spite of Robin, in spite of the Bat family and all the other help that he has, total loner, doesn't, uh, you know, only asks for help reluctantly. I mean, definitely conforming to a lot of the things you're talking about with 
a hero and almost as if the writers are saying, you know what, we need to get, we need to get Batman back to the, to what detectives in America right, right. used to be like. A yeah. little more cynical, a little more whatever. Whereas when Batman was being developed, uh, Batman actually did kind of start out that way. I mean, he started out in the pulps that were like that. And the reason Robin was introduced, uh, was because kids were reading comics and, you know, they're, there started to emerge sort of a comics authority to try to get people to clean up their comics. So seduction of the innocent comes out and, and, uh, you know, then they start feeling like they have to introduce female characters in there. Uh, like there's a, there's a, there's a, a female housekeeper. Right. Right, Harriet, right. I think her name was in Batman. Um, Batwoman was introduced so that, uh, Batman would have a, a female love interest. So people wouldn't start, uh, making uh, lewd <laughs> uh, uh, speculations about Batman and Robin, you know. So, so a lot of that stuff um, was introduced be- because they could see that uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman, and all that was had this heavy pulp influence, and it was going to be corrupt- corrupting on the kids. And it's a good thing they did all that because a lot of comic book companies went out of business yeah, because yeah. of that seduction of the innocent yeah. uh, book. Um, but then after, you know, enter the mid eighties and, and people are, are saying, okay, you know, we've got a lot of adults reading this book and, and actually we don't care if kids are reading it anymore. So they, they try to bring Batman back to that more almost, I don't want to say hard boiled, but you know, but kind of a, yeah, a edgier, uh, detective kind of thing. But, but yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a very smooth transition between, um, detective fiction and, comic book superheroes and and that that dual identity thing is i think you're right that's a that's a real i mean that's something that even when they sanitized the superheroes and tried to make them more palatable to everybody that that dual identity thing really kept it uh anchored in a place where you know uh the the hero could only their friendships could only get so deep their intimate relationships could only be so intimate and so yeah they were always sort of uh outsiders and that and when Marvel came along and you got a whole new crop of heroes like Spider-Man and everybody else, boy, they really poured that on with how much, how lonely and how isolated they were and being heroes that nobody, nobody could know what they were doing or like Peter Parker being late for yeah, work because yeah, he was yeah. out all night fighting crime and he was going to get fired and he couldn't tell, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to say, well, I've been fighting crime, so yeah. <laughs> cut me some slack, you know? <laughs> I mean, he's a real, well, real uh, loner. Marvel also though has, uh, Kind of interestingly, I, I guess there is some of this also in DC, this, uh, you know, teams of superheroes that almost create their mm-hmm. alternative, uh, civilization. I think that's really most clear in X-Men, having a kind of alternative, yes, uh, right, group that are li- living sort of apart from human beings, because human beings can't accept them. Um, I was yeah. all, mm-hmm. Yeah, DC has a, I a little bit of that too. Also, going to, I wanted to say something about um, Christopher Nolan's Batman um, in the context of thinking about uh, what we were saying about uh, the Cowboys' um, moral clarity being associated with um, how good he is at uh, physical violence. But those, you know, those two things are related. In Christopher Nolan's uh, version of Batman, I think 
a little bit in the second one, and especially in the third one, there was this idea that um, Batman's wealth is actually something that makes him good. Makes, you know, hmm. it makes him powerful, not in the sense that, you know, wealth is power, but it makes him a force for justice. Um, hmm. And I, the way that I, I can see this in two ways. One is uh, the way in which he's portrayed as having all these great toys, you know, that everyone, you know, you look at the, the way the Batmobile is in the Christopher Nolan, and it, you know, it looks like a yeah. military vehicle. So, and so he has the power to own things that are military innovations. Um, kind of reminds me of the way that, yeah. uh, you know, police forces are getting all souped up using military vehicles mm. in uh, the United States. Mm. And, um, so he's, he has the wealth to buy all of this stuff and he's, uh, contrasted, I think it's in the second movie, with these kind of poor schlubs who are wearing like black long underwear and, uh, yeah, and hockey, hockey pads. pads. yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're really supposed to look down on those guys. You know, they are just, <laughs> uh, weak schlemiels, you know? And, because, why? Because they don't have the good toys. Um, yeah, yeah. And then in the last movie, the way that, uh, you know, poor people are portrayed as, you know, just so willing to become violent, um, you know, it was, it was just shocking to me. Um, and yeah, yeah, me too. It, again, it just seemed to play on this idea of, well, you know, the only real saving grace here is, is having money. And, um, yeah. The, the real bad guy in the, the last one is, you know, someone who is rich, who's pretending to be a philanthropist, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, where, where's her money from and her power from? Well, it's from uh, the fact that she's from this oppressed minority. <laughs> she's born in a prison. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Like she's born in a prison, like in the Mideast or something. Yeah. And it's, uh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I was not a big fan of the third film really on any level, but it, it, the, all the things you're talking about were distressing, really. But, uh, I mean, you you don't think that this is something that, I mean, you don't think this is something that's a feature of modern American hero narratives, or, I I, I don't know. I, I A lot of people didn't like it, but I, I, I guess as I'm thinking about it, not very many people complain about the things that you and I are complaining about right now, so... So I don't know, maybe, maybe that is, that is the kind of thing people expect from their heroes in America today right, or something. I, I don't know. I think there still is this, um, you know, implication that, that power equals goodness. Um, 
Well, along those lines, um, you know, is there not in in uh, Eastern traditions or martial arts traditions that kind of idea? Like, because martial arts have a spiritual practice aspect to them also, so that, you know, the best fighter, uh, you know, could literally be thought of as someone who's not not so much in the European idea of pure of heart, but, you know, the he or she has has achieved some kind of balance with the cosmos mm. or, you know, they, they have some, uh, uh, they, they, they've disciplined their chi or whatever. And so, and so they're, they're the better fighter because, because they are more spiritually attuned. I mean, it is, and, and, and here I'm also wondering about the parallels between the Western in America and, and right, you know, samurai right. stories say, I mean, am I totally off base in, in looking or seeing well, connections um, there or? Interesting because I just did also teach Yojimbo, which is a samurai movie. And, uh, I read, this is the first time I realized this really that, um, uh, Kurosawa said that in writing uh, Yojimbo, he was inspired by Dashiell Hammett. Um, oh. And then, of course, hmm. Yojimbo got remade as uh, a Western, got remade as Fistful of Dollars with um, Clint Eastwood. Um, hmm. But classic, uh, the classic idea of the samurai is, um, I can say, Two things just uh, contrasting both the film and, and the classic idea of the samurai. Um, one of the main sources of power of the samurai comes from um, the Bushido code and, and relation to Zen Buddhism that um, every day the samurai is supposed to say to himself, this is the day I will die. Um, that mm. he has to be completely unattached to his own life. Um, hmm. So I think there's there is some of that in the cowboy too, kind of not caring about uh, one's own life, but somehow that makes you impervious to being killed. Um, I'm not completely sure if that's true or not, but one thing I really noticed about Yojimbo this time is that, and I haven't watched a whole lot of samurai films recently, so I might be overly generalizing, but, um, you know, it, it looks a lot like a classic Western. Um, you've got two sides of a town fighting, and he keeps playing one side off against the other, and there are all these... Uh, fights in the street, which, you know, one side will come down one side of the street, and the other side will come down the other side of the street, you know, just like a gunfight. Um, but the, uh, the end of that movie is that everybody is dead, pretty much. Everyone in the town has been killed, um, except for hmm. the main character, uh, the old man who runs the inn and the undertaker. And the whole street is covered in dead bodies. And the, the I think it's the last line of the movie, uh, 
Sanjuro, the the Ronin uh, samurai, says, "Well, you know, it's going to be pretty quiet around here now." <laughs> and then he walks away, and it's kind of like, "Yeah, <laughs> problem solved." Um, and <laughs> so, um, wow. To me, the and and the movie starts with uh, him um, coming upon this farm couple, and the the son of the farming couple is running off to to join the guys in town. Um, and they're bemoaning the fact that this is, you know, the kids don't listen to their elders anymore. Um, so we're not supposed to feel good about that ending in the way that you feel good about the ending of a Western. It's not supposed to feel like, oh, you know, justice has been served. And especially <laughs> right. when you think about the fact, uh, you know, that in the back, it's it's not very far away. It's like 15 years away from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you mm. know, streets filled with dead people. Yeah. Um, that I think the message of that movie is more, well, you know, this kind of, Western loner figure guy. <laughs> um, well, he's here in the movie. It, it's set around the time that the Japanese first came into contact with Americans. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, see, so here's the first influence America had on us is that, you know, we lost the social hierarchy. Uh, kids wouldn't listen to their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this general violence, and this guy does, you know, bring justice to things, but it's only by destroying the entire society. Almost like a trickster figure. Yeah, yeah he definitely huh. is uh, kind of like that kind of figure. Huh. So huh. I, I, it's not completely the same to me. No, no, it, it really uh, isn't. Interesting. Well, I think we've reached at least an hour. <laughs> no, I think we probably have. So, I don't know uh, how to summarize everything exactly. I, I guess uh, I one note of hopefulness I was going to bring up was to talk a little was just to mention the end of Guardians of the Galaxy because I thought that yeah. one, as a hero narrative, pointed more to the idea of uh, of connection to others again. Although, mm-hmm. I was kind of hoping, not to give anything too much away, but there's a scene at the end uh, that requires connection between various people in order for the good ending to come about. And I was kind of hoping it wasn't just going to be the band of uh, heroes, that it was going to be everyone in that scene that was required. That, that would have been better. Yeah. That would have been... Very, that would that would have been moving and inspiring in a lot of ways. That uh, the ending they had was was moving and inspiring, and it was refreshing. Yeah. But but you're right. Your idea is like mind-blowingly better. I mean, that just would have blown everybody's mind. I think. Well, I'll write. To them. <laughs> Let them know they, they should <laughs> consult me in the future. 
it, I, I thought it was still very uh, inspiring. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I, I liked it a lot. Um, yeah, good film. Yeah, I good would film recommend. with a with a with a with a western style character from Earth. Yep, definitely. Who uh, who uh, definitely didn't want to be that loner guy at all. No. He, <laughs> he he definitely wanted those connections. It was a, it was a very cool, very cool character. Yeah, yeah. And and all of them were not just him, but you know he was obviously sort of the ringleader or whatever. And uh, it was uh, it, it was a very refreshing take on on uh, the cowboy style hero. I'll I'll agree with that one hundred percent. So it's not all one thing or the other. That's something I always try to say with my students is that I mean that's why stories are so great is that even ones that are problematic I mean they're not you can't really keep them under control or if you do they're not very good stories um, right and and you know the bad news of about the fact that you know our this program is starts with the fact that everything that we human beings uh Utilize in, in in thought and in interaction and in organizing ourselves, it it all rests on the stories we tell. Right. And uh, the 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 bad news of that is we can get stuck in a rut with a story. We can get a story stuck in our heads that doesn't really allow us to engage with the world or with each other. You know, it does. Uh, we can get stuck in a story in a way that doesn't allow us to engage with the world as it is, or with each other as we are. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and, and we won't even sometimes be able to hear an alternative story. Yeah. But, but the good news is that it is a story. So. So we can change ma- it. We can. We can change it. Yeah. I mean, yes, we can get stuck in it, but we can also change it. And that's, you know, that's what Thomas Kuhn talked about with right. paradigm shifts yeah. in scientific communities. I mean, all that, all, all he was talking about there was people get stuck in a particular kind of story. That's the bad news. But, it's also the good news. It's a story. It can be changed. We can examine it. We can deconstruct it. And we can put it together in a way that makes more sense and it fits more into the way the world actually works or in the way our fellow human being actually is. And so, yeah, it's there's always um, – sometimes uh, it's sad the way people get stuck in, in their stories and how those stories drag them down. But, but the other side of that same coin is, yes, but they can change, you know. Yes, there are downward spirals, but there are upward spirals yeah. too. And one can be flipped into the other if we just look at our stories and, and tell ourselves a different one instead yeah. of the one we've been telling ourselves. Well, and to, um, I mean, just to really summarize in a very simple way what I, I was trying to say about what I, I think is a kind of downward spiral, spiral for American stories is that I think there's a, a kind of simple division of two main kinds of stories. One is about facing human limitation, which is the at the most extreme is death. And the other is about dealing with human limitation by connecting with others. And mm-hmm. the one thing that I see in a lot of American narratives is neither uh, dealing with human limitation, nor thinking that you can, uh, well, first of all, I mean, if you never face it at all, 
you don't then think, oh, but I have to do something about this by connecting with others. Yeah, um, right, right. But hopefully that's what we do on the show. <laughs> Connect with others. <laughs> and so, right. you know, right, right. I hope other people will uh, listen in and make some comments. And, uh, yeah, and engage, yeah. because that's that's how the stories get told. Yeah. Because it's, it's all about, everything is about a story. Uh, fiction stories, non-fiction stories, stories about your day, stories about what you think about what we're saying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we're all trying to uh, put our stories together in a way that makes sense and that help us all get along with each other in the world we live in. So, And to do that, we have to engage and we have to tell those stories, yeah. which is what we're trying to yeah. do here. So, Okay. Well, so till next time, good to talk to you. Yes. Yes, till next time. Thanks. Grapevine is a production of Aether Theater. Music is provided by Chris Snook.